Welcome to Snooze with Sam. Ambient sleep stories, meditations, and ASMR from Scotland. If these stories help you, I'd love if you considered becoming a patron. You will be credited in every story and could access member-only benefits such as early access and patron-only stories. You can find the link in the description. My name is Sam and I'm from a wee northwestern island called Skye. Like so many of you, I can find sleep difficult due to a number of reasons. So throughout my lifetime, I've developed a passion for helping people connect with and improve their well-being in every sense. The subconscious mind is a complex place. I understand the detrimental states we can arrive at and how precious sleep can become as a result. These stories have been created with this at their heart. So as always, lie back, take a deep breath, and enjoy this story. The story tells the tale of how the Vikings came to influence Scotland's history forever. Scotland played an important role in Viking raiding, trading, and colonization. And the Vikings played an important role in the history and national identity of Scotland. While several references in surviving sagas and other Norse lore strongly state that Scotland was best avoided, many Vikings obviously ignored the advice. It was said to be a land of fierce savages and abominable weather. 
Well, nothing's changed there. In addition to the rich supply of archaeological evidence, Scotland boasts some of the highest Nordic DNA outside of Scandinavia and shares many cultural similarities with Norway. Within a relatively short period of time, in the early 9th century, Vikings had taken enough territory in Scotland to form their own kingdom there, called Lothland or Lochlein. which, at its height, extended influence from Dublin to York. For the natives of Scotland, it was not just the active influences of this Norse presence. but also their reactions towards it that forged many disparate tribes into one people. Why did the Vikings even go to Scotland in the first place? The motive for Viking conquest and colonisation in Scotland is immediately apparent upon studying any world map. In the Viking Age, roughly 793 to 1066, much of the energy of Scandinavia was focused outward. The Norse realised that through daring and the use of their technologically advanced dragon ships, they could gain far more wealth and land than they could ever expect to gain at home. Sailing out from Norway, Denmark and Sweden towards the rich monasteries 
fertile fields and abundant resources of Ireland and Britain. The archipelago of islands that form the west of Scotland would make perfect base camps for armies to amass and trading posts to flourish. Clearly at that point, nobody had told them about the rain. I wouldn't want to be an amassing army when you're Hair's getting blown about by a big hoolie. These 790 Scottish islands, including those of Orkney, Man, Sky, Shetland and the Hebrides, are also perfectly situated to receive goods and also retreating forces back from Ireland and Britain as well as Iceland and lands further west in fact. The fjords and hills of these windswept havens even looked a little like the homelands the Norse had left behind. That's not really surprising given it's just over the road. Meanwhile, the natives of these islands, while certainly brave and hardy people, if I do say so myself, they could rarely have possessed the military organisation to resist Vikings that landed in any significant number. This is saying it mildly, I'd say. I think the best that we could manage was maybe a spade or a pitchfork. Definitely in place of a sword, but I don't know, maybe they'd have even had to resort to tossing haggis or tatties or trebucheting sheep or something, I don't know. I digress, as usual. Western Scotland, therefore, offered what we could call the Viking Dream. In the pioneer days of the early 9th century, someone who owned a few ships 
could possibly win themselves their own island. And the freedom to pursue their ambitions as far as their fate would take them. The mainland of Scotland was another story though. Centuries before, a few failed campaigns had taught the Romans, even at the height of their imperial strength, that it was better to build a wall to keep the natives of Scotland out rather than to try and conquer them. They knew and learned all too wisely. We're not so easily stepped on. The Romans even had to pull back from their Antonine Wall and build the better Hadrian's Wall further south. If you are interested, both remnants of the walls do still exist. The Antonine Wall is definitely not too far from Glasgow. It was built across the central belt. And, to be fair, Hadrian's Wall in the north of England is also pretty spectacular. There's probably never been a wall built since it. It's almost what deeper than it is tall. Should you ever get the chance, I would recommend going and have a look. The Saxons had fared no better. And so their dominion stopped in Northumbria. By the time the Vikings came on the scene, what is now Scotland as we know it was a patchwork of competing kingdoms. And each of these kingdoms was a patchwork of competing tribes and clans. These diverse tribes fell into two basic categories, the Picts and the Scots. The Picts were the Aboriginal peoples of Scotland, especially the North, including the Highlands and the east. 
allegedly, the Romans had called them pecti, from the Latin word for paint, referring to their tendency to run into battle naked and painted blue. That sounds like a normal night out in Glasgow, if I'm honest with you. Just replace the word battle with clubs, bars, or Socky Hall Street. In the intervening several hundred years, they had perhaps become more sophisticated but were still very frightening. The Scots were Gallic people that most experts believe had migrated into Scotland from Ireland. The Romans referred to Irish raiders in Britain as Scotti or Scotty. And the 9th century Scottish kingdom, Dalriata, stretched from western Scotland to northern Ireland. This added weight to the Irish origins theory. The Picts and the Scots were constantly at war with each other, as well as some of the tribes of Britons in the region, and of course, the Saxons of neighbouring Northumbria. Religion was one of the few areas where most parties actually agreed. It's very novel, if only the same could be said today. And so, monasteries, such as the famous abbey in Iona, thrived despite the discord throughout the rest of the land. And should you ever get the chance to visit Iona, I would truly make it a priority. If you want to know these days as close as possible the reality to how people lived 200 years ago, this tiny little island is about as remote as you can feel even on the west coast. I know I recommend everywhere, but, you know, why wouldn't you?
this all was, as we have seen in Ireland, the natural habitat in which Vikings became apex predators. The Vikings took advantage of the war and strife bubbling between native tribes and while the Picts and Scots fought each other the Vikings robbed the monasteries of gold and snatched more and more territory. Within about 50 years of the first Viking raids, there was enough Norse strength in mainland Scotland to threaten the existing powers there. That threat, however, had an outcome that no one, especially not the Vikings, could have anticipated. So this is how the Vikings inadvertently created Scotland. In the year 839, King Alapin of the Dal Raita Scots met a confederation of several Pictish kings in battle. Alapin's Scots were routed, and the king was killed. As the Picts impaled the hapless ruler's severed head on one of their spears, however, a large force of Vikings broke from cover and rushed them. It is not really known why the Vikings were there in such force, but it is likely that they were waiting to take further advantage of the turmoil, to weaken the native resistance to their expansion. The Vikings smashed the Picts, scattering their army and killing their kings.
Alpinsan Kena remembered to history as Kenneth McAlpin took his father's place as king of the Dao Riata. Taking advantage of the power vacuum the Vikings had just created amongst the Picts. Kenneth, who may have been half Pict himself, began successfully taking over Pictish kingdoms. By 848, Kenneth McAlpin was being called the King of the Picts and the Scots. This unification of Picts and Scots, however incomplete it may have been, did not come a moment too soon, for a massive Viking fleet of a hundred and forty ships descended upon the Scots kingdom of Dalriata. The Scots were able to retreat east into Pictish territory where they were now more welcome, depriving the Vikings of total victory and further unifying Kenneth MacAlpin's kingdom. On yourself, Kenny, good lad. Soon, people did not speak of Dauriata and Pictland anymore, but called the whole region Alpa. While various political changes throughout the next few centuries led to the country being called Scotland, it is still called Alapa in the native Scottish Gaelic language today. While it would take many, many years and many wars and even more great leaders 
a town, a land of warring tribes, into one nation. It was, in fact, the Vikings that catalyzed this change. Rewinding to the beginning of Scotland's Viking period. As mentioned, the Outer Hebrides and the Northern Inner Hebrides were predominantly Pictish, whereas the Southern Inner Hebrides formed part of the Gallic Kingdom of Dalriata. Both of these areas were affected by Norse activity. The Abbey at Iona, a beacon of Christianity in the British Isles, was sacked by Vikings in 802 and 806, prompting its monks to conceal or send away most of its treasures. But, as well as stealing, the Vikings would go on to lay down roots here. An 11th century cross, a slab decorated with Irish and Viking art, was actually found on Isla, the island of Isla, in 1838. A rather fascinating sight on sky also demonstrates this interesting parallel between the Viking occupation and Norse settlement. Ruaba and Duanan, today an uninhabited peninsula, to the south of the Coolan Hills on Skye, contains the small Loch Naard, which is connected to the sea by a short artificial canal referred to as the Viking Canal. This loch was an important site for maritime activity 
for many centuries, and it is thought that some of its features, including the stone-built key, the system to maintain constant water levels, and a 12th century boat timbers were built by Norsemen. Although this has come into question recently, actually. The canal may have been used to launch raids, as well as connecting Sky to the rest of the Kingdom of the Isles. By 1156, however, much later, the territories did eventually divide and split so that the Outer Hebrides remained under Norwegian control whilst the Inner Hebrides broke away under Norse Celtic leadership. So what about the Vikings in Scotland? Though the Vikings established supremacy in the Western Islands and ended the Scottish Kingdom of Dalriata, the emergence of a more unified Alpa changed their designs. Conquering the land no longer seemed possible. And so, as they had in Ireland, the Norse began to become more intertwined in the ethnic, cultural and political landscapes. For example, the most successful Scottish ruler of the Dark Ages, Constantine Macaed, or Constantine II, crushed a Viking offensive led by Dublin's Ivar the Younger in 902 only to surround himself with Viking allies against King Athelstan of England some decades later. Common cause and joint interest became more important than ethnicity And Norse, Scots, Picts and Britons intermarried in Scotland 
on all levels of society. Eventually, it was not only the Picts and the Scots that were Scottish, but the Vikings too. Once more, the islands were different, and remained a bastion of Viking activity and Norse customs long after the Viking Age ended. It was to islands like Orkney, the Shetlands, and the Isle of Man that the Irish king Mayor Morda drew many of his allies against Brian Boru in the Battle of Clontarf in the year 1014. And it was back to these islands that the Viking survivors returned. The Hebrides were official territories of Norway and not Scotland until the 13th century, as was Orkney and Shetland until the 15th. Today, these places are still as rich in Norse culture as they are in Norse blood. DNA studies show that the Shetland Islands are still about 45% Norse and Orkney is 30% and they offer firm evidence that these areas of Scotland were settled by Scandinavian families and not just male adventurers. Other islands, like the Hebrides, are around 10 to 15 percent, maybe a little more, which is still very high considering that we are now talking about migration that occurred thousands of years ago. In recent years, as Scotland began to consider independence from the United Kingdom, ideas about Scandinavian roots and identity gained renewed some attention in that area. In 2014, the people of Scotland voted to stay in the UK, deciding by a narrow margin that their shared history and culture 
with their neighbours was more important than their differences. Most Scots would probably agree. Maybe not so much in the cities of Glasgow. Very patriotic people here. However, that kinship with England or Norway defines Scots far less than our own unique identity. Scots, Picts and Norse all helped shape the national character of Scotland. And the Viking legacy can be seen clearly in the many Scottish contributions to the world since that time.